Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening is a priest in the Roman Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where he is director of the Respect Life Office, continuing formation for clergy and diaconal formation. Father Paul Shank was raised Jewish. He was baptized at 16 years old and was ordained in the evangelical Anglican tradition. A priest of the pastoral provision ordained or, or opened, sorry, by Pope St. John Paul II. Father Shank is founder with Father Frank Pavone of the National Pro-Life Center on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., where he acted as chairman for 20 years. Today, he conducts pro-life ministry in three capital cities, Harrisburg, Annapolis, and Washington, D.C., as well as throughout the country. He and his family came to the Catholic Church in 2004. And please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father Paul Shank. Thank you very much. Always a delight to come and uh, be with you. I explained I won't have any projection tonight because um, this, I'm eight days tonight on the road. So I've been in motion for eight days and I have five more ahead of me. So I just haven't been in a place uh, long enough to be able to put something together like that. So I'll, I, I will rely on technology tonight, but it will be a shoulder top computer. Um, <laughs> which is really quite amazing because it reads my mind it, it interprets my thoughts, it projects my thinking. Uh, it's a tremendous technology. Uh, but you know, there's uh, something that uh, is lost uh, largely to the general population, uh, and that is that uh, the, throughout Catholic history, the church has embraced technology and has advanced technology to the betterment of human knowledge and society and, and so forth. Uh, think of it, the codex, the bound book, uh, embraced by the church, not invented by the church, but embraced by the church and then made the standard for uh, written communication. Before that, it was all scrolls, uh, not easy to, um, not portable. Uh, I know this for a fact because there was a Messianic Jewish congregation in Western New York where I was pastor for many years and I went on a, a mission for them to acquire, I had learned about a Torah scroll, which had come from the Holocaust, had been entrusted to a Christian family by a rabbi in his community. They never returned. And so the Christian family emigrated to the United States and brought with them this Torah scroll, which was about 600 years old. And uh, now they were preparing for uh, the, um, twilight years of their lives and they wanted this to pass on to a place that would be appreciated. And uh, Messianic Jewish congregations, Jewish Christians, have a very hard time obtaining these, these things. They're regulated in New York State. Did you know that? You didn't know that New York regulates everything. <laughs> and uh, 
I'm not kidding, New York State regulates Torah scrolls. Why? Because there's a black market in stolen Torah scrolls. These are worth hundreds, tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, I went down to, to uh, Long Island, uh, you know, training, training, and, and, uh, and I obtained this Torah scroll, put it on my back in a, in a, 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 a sack on my back, and carried it all the way back to Western New York. So I can, I can tell you that the Codex was a great uh, improvement on book carrying. I have them here. Uh, I'm not quite sure that I'm ready yet to yield to this, uh, but, uh, but at least this is an improvement. The church embraced the Codex, you know, move that along. Then, of course, uh, the printing press, uh, right? The printing press. Uh, did you know that the first printing press Hebrew Bible in the world, in history, first Bible in Hebrew printed on a printing press with type font, you know, with, with, type, with, with, with type, uh, you know what I'm talking about, like this? No, it was more like this, right? Okay, the Catholic Church in Rome. Catholic Church in Rome. Rabbis, they were a little bit skittish, you know, really. Put the Torah like that on a thing like this. This is a little disconcerting. But the church was all for it. We should have Hebrew Bibles. So the, the first Hebrew Bible printed, bound, the Catholic Church in um, 15th, uh, no, no, 17th century, early 17th century. First time the Hebrew Bible was printed like that. And now, today, if we look at the scope of Catholic world and Catholic history, the ICC website. So here we go, again, right? The advancement, the advancement of knowledge, the good for the church and the good for the, all of society. So we have a very controversial topic to discuss tonight. Um, <clears throat> we're going to do it in two parts. Uh, this way, I can read how safe and secure I am, and uh, so I can, you know, put a little bit out there tonight, and then next Tuesday night, I'll know exactly where we stand, okay? <laughs> so we're just going to lay a little bit of groundwork tonight, just, just to um, give some backstory to this question. You, you do realize that Father Hezekiah gives me the topic and the title, Right, because this way he knows that I'm reined in and that I have good boundaries and that I'm not going to spin out of control. So he always gives me the, not only the topic, but the title. The title is his, but the content tonight will be, uh, will be mine. Um, so we're going to just lay a little bit of groundwork for that. And uh, we'll be doing that in, um, in Latin. Greek, and Aramaic. Okay with you? We will. So, listen. I went kicking and screaming. I was dragged to Hebrew school as a kid for six years. And uh, so we were modern Hebrew, uh, which has changed dramatically since I was a kid, Mishnaic Hebrew, 
and Babylonian Aramaic. And I'll be darned if I'm going to let that go. I'm going to give it to you, okay, <laughs> I to do that as a kid. Okay. So, but it's not in Latin or Greek or Aramaic that we're going to begin uh, this evening, but rather in English, if that's okay with you. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Now, whether or not Thomas Jefferson of this grand commonwealth recognized that he was embracing a truly Catholic idea when he referred to the laws of nature and of nature's God, and whether he understood, acknowledged that or not, it is true that he was relying on a very extensive body of reason and reflection, which was cultivated within, which was preserved, and which was advanced through Catholic thinking, the Catholic observation of the world. So we're not going to go into an extensive examination or, for that matter, even definition of natural law, but we need to understand that natural law is the backstory to the topic that we address tonight. So where else would we turn for natural law than St. Thomas Aquinas? If you are not feeling well this week or next, uh, turn to St. Thomas and just take a little bit each day and you will feel better, a lot better. And um, always, you know, try to balance the news with St. Thomas. So just a little bit here. Um, and let me just give you a little bit of this. In the Summa, St. Thomas states, all plans of inferior government should be modeled on the eternal law, since it is the prototype. Hence, Augustine says that in temporal law, there is nothing just and lawful save what man has drawn from the eternal law. Would you like to hear that again? All plans of inferior government should be modeled on the eternal law, since it is the prototype. Hence, Augustine says that in temporal law, there is nothing just and lawful save what man has drawn from the eternal law.
just a few days, less than a week after I was released from prison, I was in the halls of Congress, which shouldn't surprise anybody, because <laughs> prison and Congress are not far from each other. <laughs> so I was being escorted down the hallway by the sergeant at arms after having had a visit with the um, Speaker of the House in the Speaker's chambers. And then I was escorted to the dais in the House chamber uh, where I would be giving the opening prayer and then, then the uh, congressman who was uh, sponsoring me that day uh, was going to give a one-minute speech on the floor about the reasons for my having been in prison. So uh, I was escorted by the sergeant-at-arms, given a private tour. This is ahead of the chamber being called to order. And uh, I was shown how to uh, walk up the dais and position myself in the podium where the president gives the uh, State of the Union address. And uh, then I was to give my opening prayer and just so that you know that our Lord has a sense of humor. You know, the psalmist says that he who sits in the heavens laughs. So you know that, uh, so the opening prayer that day is on the day when Congress is going to vote themselves a raise. <laughs> How do you pray under those circumstances? So um, I was then to, to say the opening prayer and then to be seated while my sponsor gave the one-minute speech on the, uh, on the floor. But the, the sergeant-at-arms took me around, took me through the chamber. I was, uh, it was a really uh, an experience of contrast because literally just about six days before, I was being walked around under my prisoner number and I was being ordered around by uh, by the uh, prison um, staff, and now uh, six days later, I'm uh, in Congress and I'm being uh, marched around by the sergeant at arms. And we stopped, and there I was standing in the podium. Chamber is empty, and the sergeant at arms says, "Reverend, look up ahead of you." So I look up, and there, on in the gallery on the gallery uh, wall were profiles. Um, you've been there, you've seen it, of uh, great law givers. And right in the center, now they are all profile, but one in cameo facing the speaker's desk. So when you glance, when you stand in the podium where the president gives his uh, State of the Union, you survey the chamber, and of course, your eyes want to go to the gallery because the gallery is full as well. Right in the center of the gallery, facing you, staring at you, guess who? Who knows? Moses. No, we see we call him Moshe Rabbeinu. Moses, our teacher. Okay? So there is Moses, our teacher. And the sergeant-at-arms said, Reverend, do you notice all the lawgivers are in profile? But Moses is in cameo. 
Why? Well, I had a good answer, but I didn't want to say it. I wanted him to say it. So I said, um, will you tell me? And he said, because Moses reminds the chamber that God's law is higher than man's law. This was an official orientation to the chamber. I was chaplain of the day for the House of Representatives. Honorary. Uh, I, I got no pay for it, and I didn't even get a credit from the IRS from my day there. But it was nevertheless honorary, and I got a certificate, you know. But that was an official orientation. That was an official speech, and I'm being told Moses is in the chamber of the House of Representatives to remind the House that God's law is higher than man's law. Now, you know also the controversy about the Ten Commandments in courthouses. You followed that a little bit? In fact, we had a, a, a federal judge, very dopey. I don't mean the man. I mean the office. So he ordered that mar federal marshals jackhammer the Ten Commandments out of the Supreme Court of Alabama. You remember this? He ordered that marshals, federal marshals, go into the Supreme Court of Alabama and jackhammer out marble Ten Commandments and remove them. Now, why did I say that this was a dopey idea? Because the Ten Commandments are in the United States Supreme Court House. Have you been there? We give our own private tours of the court, and I always like to go into the chamber and point to, once again, in a parade on the bas relief up above uh, the courtroom, in a parade of lawgivers uh, who are all in profile, faces forward, and then there is, guess who? Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher. And there he is standing, and he's turned now, and he's glancing at the courtroom, just above the, uh, what would be our far right, there's no other meaning in that, uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the bench. And there he is with the two tablets of the law in the crook of his elbow. And the only commandment that you can read. Have you been there? You've seen it. You can only read one of the Ten Commandments because the way the tablets rest against each other, one on top of the other, and the crook of his arm, so you can, you can only read one commandment. And do you know what it says? It says, Lo tiratzat. That's literally what it says. It's in Hebrew. <laughs> and it says, Lo tiratzat. What does this mean? You shall not kill 
the judicially innocent. You shall not kill the judicially innocent. This is the one commandment that the artist and the court, which had to approve the art in 1932, 1931, they were, that was the only one they were, that they felt was important enough to be displayed to the court itself. Again, the eternal law higher than the inferior law. Remember what St. Thomas said, inferior government should model its laws on the eternal law, the natural law, the law of nature and of nature's God, to take Jefferson's uh, phrase from the, um, so this is the backdrop since we are in a political season, I, I know it's barely recognizable, <laughs> but it is a political season. So let's, let's, um, let's hear St. Thomas on politics, if you will, electoral politics. St. Thomas wrote in his commentary on Job, not one that's widely read. You know, everybody knows the Summas, right? Summa Theologica, Summa Contra Gentilis, right? But Job, excellent. Listen to this. Two main reasons why men fall short of justice. Two main reasons why they fall short of justice. Deference to magnates. That's number one. Number two, deference to the mob. Two reasons why men fall short of justice. Deference to magnates, deference to the mob. That's the reason why we need more than two parties. That was a joke, <laughs> but it is a political season, okay? All right, so here we have the necessity of the eternal natural law when we approach the subject of our civil laws and of civil obedience, of civil obedience. Now, listen, if you will, to the compendium of the social doctrine of the church. If you don't have this, um, you can get it on, I mean, you can access it online at um, Vatican VA. The compendium of the social doctrine of the church. Uh, this is very important. The social doctrine, the structures of society, the things that bring us together in society. In the compendium number 400, it states this, recognizing that natural law is the basis for, oh, I never gave you a definition of natural law, did I? Okay, so I will give you a very quick shorthand definition and then I'll go to this other. Natural law has been defined as a body of unchanging moral principles, 
a body of unchanging moral principles regarded as the basis for all human conduct. Let me give it to you one more time. A body of unchanging moral principles regarded as the basis of all human conduct. That is for all human conduct, not of, for all human conduct. Now, one more quick little illustration story. So my brother, who is the director of Faith and Action on Capitol Hill in Washington, which mission, among other things, is to reintroduce the Ten Commandments to American social life, um, ecumenical uh, representatives present the Ten Commandments to elected and appointed officials. It's about 300 and some odd, uh, maybe close to 400 of them now on Capitol Hill in uh, offices, chambers of members of Congress, the Senate, federal judges, and uh, they were twice delivered to the White House, but they were sent over to the, to the receiving dock. We don't know what happened to them after that, and we still don't know what's happened to them. Uh, so, but this, uh, this is the mission of Faith and Actions, to represent the Ten Commandments to American public life. So a Baltimore Sun reporter picked up on this story and pursued my brother and said, I'd like to accompany you, if, if I may, to a, a presentation, hear what's said and done and so forth, and write a little story about this. It turned out to be much more than a little story in the Baltimore Sun. Um, so they're traveling about in the car together. The reporter says to my brother, Reverend, uh, now, he said, let me, let me try to understand. You believe that there is a body of moral laws that are applicable to everyone at all times and in all places. Words to that effect. And my brother said, yes, that's... That's our position, that the Ten Commandments represent this moral law which is applicable to all people at all times in every place. And the reporter said, that's really scary. <laughs> that's really scary, he said. So then my brother said, Arthur, let me ask you. So is it that you believe that there are no absolute moral laws that are applicable to all people everywhere at all times, that there is no absolute moral laws. And the reporter said, yes, that would, that would be my position. And Rob said, Arthur, you're the scary one. <laughs> so back to the compendium of social doctrine of the church. Recognizing that natural law is the basis for and places limits on positive law, that's the inferior law, that's the law made up by, well, members of Congress, among other places. So let me start again. Recognizing that natural law is the basis for and places limits on positive law means admitting that it is legitimate to resist authority 
should it violate in a serious or repeated manner the essential principles of natural law. Natural law is therefore the basis of the right to resistance. Told you this was controversial. Let me read it to you again. Recognizing that natural law is the basis for and places limits on positive law means admitting that it is legitimate to resist authority should it violate in a serious or repeated manner the essential principles of natural law. Natural law is therefore the basis of the right to resistance. Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church, number 400. Now the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church states that the Church's social teaching is founded on certain permanent principles. This is the phrase that's used in the English version. Permanent principles, the first of which is the dignity of the human person, which it says, quote, is the foundation of all other principles and content of the church's social doctrine, end quote. That's the compendium at number 160. The church's social doctrine stops to dwell above all on the principal and indispensable dimensions of the human person. That's the compendium at number 124. So to understand the church's teaching on human society and social issues, it is necessary and fundamental to discover what it teaches about the human person and human rights. The compendium asserts, quote, the roots of human rights are to be found in the dignity that belongs to each human being. The ultimate source of human rights is not found in the mere will of human beings. Positive law, inferior government. See what I'm saying? Okay. The ultimate source of human rights is not found in the mere will of human beings, in the reality of the state, in public powers, but in man himself and in God his creator. These rights are universal, inviolable, inalienable. Now these are phrases that are taken directly from Catholic reasoning on the law, and now you can see where the language of Thomas Jefferson came from, yes? He inherited this. And by way of the founders, we as a nation have inherited this. This is Catholic thinking, pure and simple. Comes directly from the fountainheads of um, St. Albert and St. Thomas. And then proliferates further from there. And uh, of course we know that St. Thomas relied on Aristotle for so many of these ideas, but but he interpreted Aristotle from a distinctly Christian viewpoint, very distinctly Christian. And, and, and he, he gave that view and interpretation, but also contended with Aristotle when Aristotle's ideas 
uh, were in conflict with Christian revelation. Okay, so uh, but this is a long. This is long predates the United States of America. Okay, the compendium goes on to specify that quote the first right presented in this list is the right to life from conception to its natural end. And furthermore, the compendium states that, quote, an integral part of the right to life is the right of the child to develop in the mother's womb from the moment of conception, close quote. This is the compendium at number 155. Abortion the willful taking of an unborn child's life is, quote, a horrendous crime and constitutes a particularly serious moral disorder. Far from being a right, it is a sad phenomenon that, con that contributes seriously to spreading a mentality against life, representing a dangerous threat to a just and democratic social existence, close quote. That's the compendium at number 233. So we see then that Catholic social teaching starts with the universal, inviolable, inalienable right to life, and that right begins at conception when both reason and revelation tell us a new human being begins. In his recent apostolic exhortation, Pope Francis writes, the defense of unborn life, I'm quoting, is closely linked to the defense of each and every other human right. It involves the conviction that a human being is always sacred and inviolable. In any situation and at every stage of development, human beings are ends in themselves and never a means of resolving other problems. Once this conviction disappears, so do solid and lasting foundations for the defense of human rights, which would always be subject to the passing whims of the powers that be." Close quote, Pope Francis. Now, when I was um, under arrest and I was in shackles, both arms and legs, and being carried or pulled along by wizened uh, police officials, officers, more than officers, ra ranking officers. One man in particular, old enough to be my father, was weeping. And uh, I, I, I didn't want to disturb his disturbance. So I didn't say anything. Finally, I, I glanced at him. Maybe I said some gesture of kind word to him. He was so upset. And he said, when I was your age, I would be arresting him and not you. This was a real profound conflict for an officer of the law, for an official of the law. Because you see, he saw the conflict between the natural law, the moral law, this one who I am now bound to protect is violating that eternal law, that undisturbable law, and now I have to 
act against you, this was too much for him to bear, too much for him. This was too much, too great of a conflict. It was overwhelming him. Catholic social teaching states, the relationship with God requires that the life of man be considered it's sacred and inviolable. That is, it is never to be broken, infringed, dishonored, or violated. The fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill, Exodus 20.13, Deuteronomy 5.17, has validly, has validity, pardon me, because God alone is the Lord of life and death. The respect owed to the inviolability and integrity of physical life finds its climax in the positive commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, by which Jesus enjoins the obligation to tend to the needs of one's neighbor. Close quote. Now the compendium invokes Vatican II, and in particular the, doc the document Gaudium et Spes, which presents in a systematic manner, I'm quoting from the compendium, the themes of culture, of economic and social life, of marriage and of the family, of the political community, of peace and the community of peoples, in the light of a Christian anthropological outlook and of the church's mission. Everything is considered from the starting point of the person and with a view to the person, the only creature that God willed for its own sake. Society, its structures and development must be oriented toward the progress of the human person. That's the compendium at number 96. The progress of the human person. So the whole fabric of social responsibility as regards human and civil rights, care for the poor, the weak and the vulnerable, issues of justice and peace, is tied together with this principal idea of the dignity of all persons and the inviolability of human life. So when I was um, entering federal prison as a prisoner, I was, um, you know, put through the, the usual, um, I, don't, I, I don't know that it's delousing anymore, but I was standing naked and being sprayed with stuff. I don't know. I didn't ask. <laughs> and uh, then I was, you know, issued my prison clothes and uh, then uh, walked down to the place where I would be residing. And uh, I was then to undergo a series of interviews, uh, particularly with a wonderful, uh, very wise, um, gentle and thoughtful African-American prisoner who um, was a, now, you know, was, was in charge of the ward, if you will, so to speak. And uh, he was a trustee, and uh, he was responsible for assigning um, your room and, 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 and so forth, your job. And uh, so in the course of this discussion, um, you know, he spoke in a very, in a very measured way, and uh, so we were talking about this and that, my education, what, you know, where my interests lay, and so forth and so on. This was in anticipation of being assigned a, a job in the prison. And then he said to me, um, now he said, what, what do you think 
of homosexuals? I thought it was a philosophical question. <laughs> and uh, so um, I said, well, you know, it's uh, a moral disorder. It's, uh, but the individual is, is uh, accorded dignity and, and respect. I said, you know, it's, sin is something that we are all prone to. And, and, and so, so I, I waxed pastoral, <laughs> philosophical. He said, what about transvestites? I said, well, the same would, would you know, would, the same would go. I, I, I thought I was being tested. This was like an entrance test, you know? <laughs> and he said, when I finished my, my philosophical treatise, he said, well, now I know who's going to be Diane's uh, bed buddy because nobody else will bunk in with her. <laughs> and so I had Diane uh, as, my, as my bunkie, my, my, my roommate. Uh, so it was now my responsibility to accord this individual with all the dignity and respect that every human person created in the image and likeness of God is to be accorded, uh, to reach out, try to connect in some way, communicate in an effective way, bring this person to a knowledge of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness, and restoration, and so forth. It didn't help that he insisted that he spoke only Spanish, and I had studied French. So, um, but I did, I did what I could do. So Catholic social teaching insists that a society care for its weaker members, okay? And uh, justice requires that everyone should be able to enjoy their own goods and rights. And this can be considered the minimum measure of love. Social life becomes more human the more it is characterized by efforts to bring about a more mature awareness of the ideal toward which it should be oriented, which is the civilization of love. That's the compendium at number 391. So the dignity of the human being, called to proclaim the goodness and fruitfulness that comes from God, is eminently revealed in the task of procreation. Human fatherhood and motherhood while remaining biologically similar to that of other living beings, contain in an essential and unique way a likeness to God, which is the basis of the family as a community of human life, as a community of persons united in love, communio personarum. The social subjectivity of the family, both as a single unit and associated in a group, is expressed as well in the demonstrations of solidarity and sharing, not only among families themselves, but also in the various forms of participation in social and political life. Now I'm gonna summarize this in a minute. This is what happens when the reality of the family is founded on love, being born in love and growing in love. The compendium at number 246. So the rights of families, especially in the decision to have children, must never be abridged. All programs of economic assistance aimed at financing campaigns of sterilization and contraception are to be morally condemned as affronts to the dignity of the person and the family. That's the compendium at number 234. 
Now, the family has its foundation in the free choice of spouses to unite themselves in marriage in respect for the meaning and values of this institution that does not depend on man, but on God himself. The family is an institution born, even in the eyes of society, from the human act by which the partners mutually surrender themselves to each other and is founded on the very nature of that conjugal love, which the total and exclusive gift of person to person entails a definitive commitment expressed by mutual, irrevocable, and public consent. That's the compendium at number 215. Now it's emphasized in the compendium that no power, no power can abolish the natural right to marriage or modify its traits and purpose. Marriage, in fact, is endowed with its own proper, innate, and permanent characteristics. That's number 216. In its objective truth, marriage is ordered to the procreation and education of children. That's number 218. How incongruous is the demand to accord marital status to unions between persons of the same sex? It is opposed, first of all, by the objective impossibility of making the partnership fruitful through the transmission of life according to the plan inscribed by God in the very structure of the human being. See? Why were the other prisoners in, in my prison? Um, and I, my, my alma mater is McKean Federal Correctional Institution in Bradford, Pennsylvania. Just so you know, you know, I've, I've, I've got my credentials. Okay, so why was it that the other prisoners didn't want to bunk in with Diane? What was it? Was it just that they were filled with hatred, venom, and, and, uh, and disgust? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it was that they saw in this a contradiction of their own nature. And, and they found it impossible to manage. And why should they? They're, they're in federal prison, probably for things like tax evasion and, and uh, drug uh, dealing, and so, well, why, why should they have to do this? They just found it impossible to assimilate this, uh, this contradiction. And so they found it uh, you know, difficult to, to manage, and you know, I had shot my mouth off, so uh, <laughs> there I was with a new project um, on top of my federal job, which I also got. So they see this, this contradiction, all right? So it's, it's only in the union of two sexually different persons that the individual can achieve perfection in a synthesis of unity and mutual psychophysical completion. And still, this is the compendium, homosexual persons are to be fully respected in their human dignity. That's number 228. The social teaching then begins with the sanctity of human life in the womb, the right to be born, and therefore to enjoy all other human rights. It addresses the intrinsic evil of all attacks on innocent human life, such as, quote, any type of murder, genocide, abortion, euthanasia, or willful suicide. That's Gaudium et Spes at 27. This is the essence of the social teaching Pope Francis and the Catholic Church and its institutions remain firmly committed to. To Catholic physicians, Pope Francis said this, be witnesses and diffusers of the culture of life. 
your being Catholic entails a greater responsibility, first to yourselves through a commitment consistent with your Christian vocation, and then to contemporary culture by contributing to recognizing the transcendent dimension of human life, the imprint of God's creative work from the first moment of its conception. This is a task of the new evangelization that often requires going against the tide and paying for it personally. The Lord is also counting on you to spread the gospel of life. Now what happens then when the laws of a particular society or state fail to uphold or worse, undermine and violate these essential principles of the natural law or of human rights? Christian humanism, the product of centuries of classical Christian reflection on justice and social relations, including the relative roles of government and citizenry, have produced a deep moral and ethical response to state-sponsored injustice. The seminal passage in scripture, which establishes a right of conscience to resist unjust authorities, is found at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Acts, four, Acts of the Apostles 4, 1 through 20. We'll leave the Latin and the Greek for another time. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the morrow, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. On the morrow, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a cripple, by what means this man has been healed, be it known to you all and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, but which has become the head of the corner. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they wondered, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man that had been healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is manifest in all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right at all in the name, uh, I'm sorry, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now there is a much greater strength to this phrase in verse 19 in the Aramaic New Testament. Anav Shimon Kepha ve Yohanan ve Emru Lahon in Kena Kadam Allah Dalkuan Nashman Yatir Min Allah. You hear that? 
Did you grasp it? Before God, Allah, in Aramaic, Allah, God. Before Allah, before God, whether we are to heed God or heed you, you be the judge. Justice. Justice. For we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. The apostles then determined that they must obey their consciences, violating the law. St. Augustine teaches that an unjust law is no law at all. St. Thomas Aquinas defines an unjust law as a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. Just laws affirm human dignity and freedom. Unjust law degrades human persons and deprives them of freedom. Resistance to such law is a matter of conscience. This is what we mean by the term civil disobedience, which we will explore in greater depth in our next lecture. Thank you. Hi, Father. Uh, wonderful uh, talk. What was the uh, reason given for your incarceration? Uh, um, what had happened was a federal judge in the Western District of New York, the far reaches of New York State by the Canadian border, 17 counties, had uh, issued an order prohibiting myself and any others um, from approaching persons who were abortion-minded, who uh, were seeking an abortion, volunteered, or worked in an abortion business, uh, or worked in an abortion referring government office, um, approaching them with a contrary message, a, a message uh, uh, that affirmed life, that offered alternatives uh, to the abortion decision, including counseling, uh, medical services, housing, uh, and financial support. So uh, we adopted a position, myself and those that were volunteering with me, uh, we took the position that we would be compliant in action, defiant in speech. That was our motto. Compliant in action, defiant in speech. Uh, so we went to a public sidewalk outside of a post office, behind which was an abortion business in a building with 16 other businesses. And on the sidewalk, we passed out Bibles, New Testaments with a hopeful message, pro-life literature, information on alternative medical services for expectant mothers, and what amounted to services available to the persons coming to abortion businesses. And uh, I was charged with five counts of violating the judge's order. In one case, I was talking to a couple coming out of the parking area of this corporate building, and she was talking with me, but he wanted to punch my lights out. But I continued to talk with her until they reached the car. Later, the judge said that I had violated his right to be left alone. In another case, a woman took the 
New Testament from me. She held it close to her heart, and she said, thank you. And the judge ruled that I had impeded her constitutional access to abortion. Never mind, she was a middle-aged woman, and she was, you know, who knows. But nevertheless, she thanked me for the Bible. In another uh, incident, a man became so infuriated with me that he took my literature, including my Bibles, and he pushed them out of my hand, stomped on them, and um, while I was on the stand testifying in my own behalf, the prosecutor, prosecuting attorney, said, Reverend, what does it take to shut you up? I said, I, 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 I hadn't thought about that question. He said, well, he said, is, is it enough if somebody says no? And uh, I said, not really, because I've been a pastor long enough to know that people say one thing and mean something else. He said, well, he said, what if they wave their arm? I didn't know they had a video. He said, what if they wave their arm at you? I said, I, I don't know what that gesture always, would always mean, and I'm not even sure I would see it in context. He said, well, Reverend, what if he raises his middle finger to you? I said, maybe he was ordering one New Testament. <laughs> uh, I thought it was funny. The judge did not. Uh, so I was eventually convicted of violating the order on five counts and then an additional count of um, dressing similarly to my identical twin brother who was with me that day in an attempt, according to the prosecution, to evade prosecution and conviction. Um, so I was, I was convicted on all six counts. Now, the whole case lasted for seven years. The first two years were preliminary, leading up to the trial. The trial lasted five months, and then I was sentenced to two years in federal custody. Our seventh child had just been born. It was just a newborn, the time that I was uh, convicted. So I went to federal prison in Bradford, Pennsylvania, and uh, then I um, appealed to the United States Court of Appeals. And uh, the Court of Appeals found, a three-judge panel found two to one in my favor, striking down the order and the conviction as a violation of my First Amendment rights under the Constitution. And um, actually, I learned that from an inmate who came by my cell and said, uh, did you see the paper? And I said, no. And he threw down the paper on my bunk. And there on the front page, it said that the uh, US Court of Appeals had found in my favor. So I was rejoicing, called my wife, called my parents. And then they called me forward in the prison. And they said, you have to leave by tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, because otherwise we get charged for another day of your being here. And I said, I'm all for saving the government money. Um, <laughs> So I was outside. I was actually leaving with my bag, you know, with the other prisoners on the sidewalk. And they said, they came to me and they said, don't, don't go home. Go directly to the federal courthouse. So I did. And they told me there that the chief judge, John Newman, who had given the Second Circuit 
Roe v. Wade, a year before Roe v. Wade in 1972, he had um, rescinded the finding of the three-judge panel and had remanded the case to be re-argued en banc. So that meant 17 federal judges had to sit in for the argument, for the case to be argued again. And if you think of 17 federal judges, just think of the number of golf games that had to be rescheduled. Uh, it took six months. I was put under house arrest uh, detention wearing an electronic ankle bracelet. I had to pay the government to listen in on all my phone conversations. I was not permitted to speak. I had to apply for travel or for an appearance. I was asked to have the liturgies in an Anglican church on Easter Sunday morning. They told me I had to see a FBI agent. The FBI agent sat down and said, Reverend, don't, uh, don't be angry about this. This is coming down from on high. And I said, I'm not angry. I, they said, we just have some questions we have to ask. First of all, will this be a pro-life event? I said, it's Easter Sunday. <laughs> what can I say? So we appealed to the United States Supreme Court. We were granted certiorari in March. In October, we went to the court and argued on the basis of the First Amendment. And in February of the following year, I got a telephone call. The Chief Justice read the opinion, Shank versus Pro-Choice, and the court found eight to one in your favor, striking down the order against you as a violation of the First Amendment. So it was, you know. All God's doing. It was all God's doing. It was seven years and at a cost of $778,000 by the time we reached that opinion at the U.S. Supreme Court. So, but it all turned on our natural right to defend and advocate for life and to challenge the injustice of the law that allows the slaughter of innocent life. So that's what, that's what the case was all about. It's called Shank versus Pro-Choice, 1997. Well, I was on and off in prison, but the whole time that I was actually in the federal prison was just a month before the, I was released because of the U.S. Court of Appeals decision. They kept threatening to send me back because uh, you know, we, we had a prayer group in my home and the federal agent showed up one night and said, I want the name of everybody in the house. And, uh, what are you doing here, and where's the, what are the literature you're looking at, and so forth and so on. And uh, so they were always threatening, you know. It was very hostile. It was a very hostile situation. Any other questions? Yes? yes. Uh, so on the subject of this reporter who found it immensely scary, this idea of an eternal moral law, why do you think that was? What was the sort of philosophical genealogy behind that, and how did the idea of moral law go from something established in our culture to something that is alien and subversive to pretty much every educated person? Well, I don't know what his particular worldview was because it turned out to be a brief exchange just in the course of two days. But I, I think what lays at some of this is that we have become so highly subjective, so invested in our personal feelings, that anything that challenges my personal equilibrium, my sense of, of composure in the things that I want to do or that I do 
or that I don't want to do, anything that, that, that threatens that sense of um, placid composure becomes a threat, a, a real existential threat, a, a feeling like I'm being hemmed in on, and, and, I'm, and my, my freedom to, to act, or perhaps it's not even that, it's a freedom to feel, my freedom to feel is being threatened, taken away from me. And I think that's what he means by, by a threat. Now, true, if someone thinks long and hard enough about it, maybe they're thinking, well, you're just another form of Sharia. You know, uh, the next thing you know, you're going to be putting us in camps, or you're going to be cutting off our hands, or you're going to be putting us in stocks, or something like that. And we do have to look back at a very checkered history with Christianity mm -hmm. and reference points in history, even recent history, that distort the gospel in, in a very, in an awful way. You know, all we have to think about is uh, torture of, of um, apostates or the burning of crosses. Mm -hmm. So we have to remember that there are people without a Christian formation who just see these references and feel threatened by them. So we can't just dismiss them all. They are genuine, valid fears that have to be overcome. And I think what Pope Francis in particular has invited us to do is to overcome them in great gestures of love and mercy and compassion and openness rather than presenting people with firm codes right from the get-go you know, right from the start. So um, I think it's a mixture of many things, actually. Any other questions? We're actually getting a question online from Bob asking, how can we raise political, uh, or sorry, how can we raise expectations of virtue in our political process? Well, let's just remember that uh, politics is just people. Politics isn't some kind of... Um, monstrous structure, uh, you know, like transformers. Uh, they're not some kind of extra human powers that, uh, that, 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 you know, they're just people. And my brother, whose ministry is focused on Capitol Hill, likes to say that some people are called to the down and out. He says, I'm called to the up and out. Those in, in high places in government are st stricken with the same pain and anguish that all human beings experience. There is virtually no difference. So, you know, it's again a call to a new evangelization, but one that is highly personable. You know, I think, you know, there, there are some very telling dramas that are now being one of them is, uh, what is it, House of Cards? Is that what it's called, House of Cards? Yeah. yeah. So that kind of gives you these intrigues and so forth and so on. And of course they're exaggerated, but they're based on true experiences. And they demonstrate the anguish that people in high levels of government responsibility endure in their lives. So it's very hard to reach them, but if you can, and that's one of the reasons for our mission in Washington, which has been there now 24 years, 
and operating mostly under the radar, almost exclusively under the radar, for the purpose of personal evangelization, one-to-one -one contact, friendship evangelism, where you're, where you're reaching out, you're, you're making friends, and then in that trust relationship, you have the opportunity to impart the gospel, to invite that person to a deeper spiritual life. And I think this is where perhaps the Holy Father has been misunderstood in many ways, and by, by the faithful. You know, I think one of the reasons why the Holy Father has, has perhaps expressed things the way that he has in an open-ended way is that if you, keep the, if you keep the access points open and unobstructed, then people will make their way through. And in the course of their travel, closer and closer to the heart of the church, they can get more information. But if the, if, the, uh, if the portals, if the access points are firmly locked and closed, then no one's going to make their way in. And I think we have to be patient because patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control, right? So patience right in the middle of them. And, you know, we have to be as patient with others as God is patient with us. It took me a very long time, you know, it took me a very long time to make my way through. Um, and so I think what we need to do is we need to be very patient with people, very careful, very merciful, and make those personal connections in government. And, you know, writing, a, writing an official a note that you're praying for them, remembering them, that you had an intention made for them, somewhere could be literally transformational because all they get are demands for action or sharp, blunt criticisms. And so a note coming through that says, I prayed for you today could be literally transformational to a person in government, local or federal. And boy, do they ever need it. Boy, do they ever need it, you know? You know, the judge, um, so there were a number of arrests leading to my federal case. So down below, as I was making my way up, uh, so I had a judge who sentenced me to 10 days in the county jail. But he gave me three days to get my effects in order and then report to the jail, so he was very kind. And, uh, but that night, there was a reception for the mayor, City Hall, so I went to the reception and uh, I walked into the reception, and there was the judge. And his back was to me, but he was talking to a city commissioner. And he was flailing his hands, and he was saying, these, these anti-abortion people were in my courtroom, and I had no idea what to do with them. And the commissioner said, well, he's right behind you. Why don't you talk? Why don't you speak with him now? <laughs> so he turned around. Now, much, much later, I get out of jail, and now I have a funeral in my church, and who comes in and sits in the second pew in front but the judge. This was, I had a funeral for one of his business partners. And so afterward, I was very careful to make a beeline to the back, make sure I was right in front, and here comes the judge. And I said, uh, I said, Your Honor, it's good to see you today. And he reached out his hand to respond to mine, and he said, Reverend, you must hate me. And I said, Judge, I don't hate you. I love you. And there's nothing more that I would love than to be your prayer partner and your friend. So anytime you need anything from me, don't hesitate to call. And he said, Reverend, you know, I know you're, you're being sincere. He said, you know why? I said, what is it, Judge? We went for a walk around the church. 
And he said, remember the day I sentenced you to jail? And I said, Judge, I, I won't forget that. <laughs> he said, well, remember we were at the reception? And I said, yes. He said, and I turned around, and there you were. And I said, I do remember that, Judge. He said, well, do you remember what you did then? And I said, no. And then he reached out, and he hugged me. Now, to this day, I don't remember ever hugging the judge at the mayor's reception at City Hall. I think an angel did, and he thought I did. <laughs> but nevertheless, he did that. And he said, when you did that, he said, I knew you had the love of God in you. Well, he would later face a tremendous uh, scandal and be removed from the bench. And I reached out to him. He had a heart attack in the course of this because of the stress and so forth. And I reached out to him. We became fast friends and prayer partners for many years. So I think we have to realize these people in government are people just like you and me, and they need the same help that we need and the same patience. So we have to be careful to be merciful, especially now. Yeah. One final question. Okay. Uh, I know uh, we have freedom of speech in this country, but uh, uh, talking your experience like this, don't you feel safe? I'm not sure I understand in, what you in mean. In public, you... Uh, do I feel safe? Yeah. Oh, oh, okay, so another way to say that is do I feel threatened? Mm -hmm. No, I don't feel threatened. No, I don't. You know, all of us live with the possibility of something happening to us. So we have to put our, hands, our lives in the hands of God. You know, there was a time when I would go out speaking, um, the... the, the Detectives came to me one time and they said, you know, we, we have several credible threats against you. We'd like you to wear this. And they bring me a, what do you call it? A flak jacket, a, a bulletproof vest, black. And they said, just wear this underneath, you know, because we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to lose you on our watch. And I, a couple of times, I, and this was so ridiculous. <laughs> I was, you know, I'm like, a, I'm like a, forget that, took it off. And I really, I was only doing it to be, to be obedient to them, you know. But uh, no, no, I, don't. I honestly don't. I honestly don't. I, I think we're in a time now where hearts are very open. Never mind the crazy discourse in the media. Just keep in mind that media companies absolutely need to have controversy and uh, be pitted against each other. Real people... Real people don't spend their time in television land. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, real people just live lives with their neighbors and their families and so forth and so on. They're the folks we're reaching out to, loving and, and ministering the gospel to. Yeah. Okay. I think we need to Thank wrap it you up, very right? much, okay, Father, for a wonderful Thanks. presentation. Ya eher ad noi panava lecha ve hunecha. Ye sam ad noi panava lecha ve sam lecha. Shalom. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. 
If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.